back welcome once again to another episode of mike mike and oscar another oscar race checkpoint for your ear holes dear listener i am your co-host mike one this is co-host also mike you made that sound very dirty somehow <laughs> but uh yeah we're doing a lot of uh news shows right now that's a bit unexpected for the time of yeah. year but we got a lot of news to discuss we're going to discuss that uh for the first half of the show i would say and then as promised we got the tribeca film festival to recap and i'm yes. gonna yeah, I'm going to recommend a dozen movies for everybody on on the second half. Uh, if it's if it's dirty, that's because I'm trying to start off with like entendre and double speak since our lead story is about Steve Spielberg having yeah. basically no constitution and just going back on his word. I guess that's it's I'm inspired is what it is. You're inspired uh, and you made it sexual. <laughs> Good. Well. It's the I don't know, start. Maybe I'm hearing things. It's the start we all came here for. But yes, uh, we do we do have quite the episode question mark might be two we're not sure yet but we're gonna say it's an episode for now uh to get to so let's talk about news of the industry and the awards landscape and we start off with mr spielberg michael yeah his production company ambland entertainment has made a deal with the devil (laughs) they made a deal with netflix they made a deal with netflix steven spielberg is under the netflix tent he will now produce multiple films for the streaming service per year michael so let me take you back like 28 months ago, right? It was a simpler time. None of us had heard of COVID yet. Green Book had just won Best Picture. Masses everywhere oscillated between yawning and being rightfully outraged. And then there was one Steven Spielberg who lit up a cigar somewhere in the Hollywood Hills, having just campaigned all season for Green Book over Roma. In part because he owned one of the production companies behind Green Book and nobody ever talks about that, but also, in part, (laughs) because he had just unleashed a tirade in the preceding few months proclaiming that Netflix films should be exclusive to the Emmys and not play the Oscars. This was a Mm -hmm. quote from one of the Amblin spokespeople about Steven Spielberg's stance. Quote, Steven feels strongly about the difference between the streaming and theatrical situation, said an Amblin spokesperson. This is from an an article off of IndieWire two years ago. Quote, he'll be happy if the others will join his campaign when that comes up at the Academy Board of Governors meeting. He will see what happens. Boy, That really all sounds like some very serious, serious talk. Mm -hmm. Let's check in now to see how he feels about Netflix. (laughs) This is from the desk of Steven Spielberg the other day. Quote, at Amblin, storytelling will forever be at the center of everything we do. And from the minute Ted Sarandos, Netflix's co-CEO and chief content officer, and I started discussing a partnership, it was abundantly clear that we had an amazing opportunity to tell new stories together and reach audiences in new ways, said Spielberg in a statement announcing the deal. Quote, this new avenue for our films alongside the stories we continue to tell with our longtime family at Universal and our other partners will be incredibly fulfilling for me personally since we get to embark on it together with Ted and I can't wait to get started with him, Scott, and the entire Netflix team, Michael. I wonder if our listeners can just see me (laughs) nodding like Carmela Soprano in the background (laughs) right now as you speak because we covered this. We covered this a couple years ago and yeah, this is just such a strange situation where Spielberg has done 
a 180 and everybody's coming out saying no he's always worked for hbo his production companies have always worked for tv mm-hmm. they that was just an awards thing that he wanted those <laughs> I mean, for they, emmys they, they, and these they for could Oscars be right work. like that could have all been just 4d chess by him campaigning on behalf of green book over roma mm. but on its face <laughs> this is <laughs> i think it's inevitable i don't know how you feel about it but when i heard this news my first take was yeah that checks out. I mean, Netflix is in the business of getting big-time directors carte blanche over dream projects and stuff. I feel like it's only a matter of time before every big director has something to do with Netflix at this point. Yeah, so I think the trial of the Chicago 7, I didn't read further in, into this, but the Boris Kitt article mentioned Chicago 7 mm-hmm. as being kind of a meeting ground and a precursor to the overall deal here where Amblin was working on that, and then Netflix uh, became the uh, caretaker of the Chicago 7 there, and did right by the film, got a lot of Oscar noms, got a good push. Did it, you know, do as well in terms of the wins? Of course not. But here we have uh, Netflix uh, doing well with an awards player. We got a lot of awardsy properties in the Amberlin Library right now, Mike. We got the uh, Bradley Cooper, Leonard Bernstein film called Maestro. We got the Spielberg biopic. And like you said, we got Green Book in the past. 1917 was a recent player. And Amblin... You know, they're doing double duty. They're not just working for Netflix. They're continuing their deal with Universal. Uh, That's a production deal that they've had for a long time. A lot of Spielberg movies have been distributed by Universal Pictures, and they will continue to go theatrically unless they go PBOD and uh, everything is uh, shuttered in in, in the space out of your own home. It's all digital. Who's the the white whale now for, for Netflix? Nolan, is he the only? Is he like the last holdout here? Cameron? Well, uh, yeah. There's a. There's probably a list, right? I mean, yeah. Nolan, Tarantino, Bigelow. I mean, you, you could, We could rip through a list of big name directors who have not done uh, a major streaming project yet. But we, looking at these content deals of hundreds of millions of dollars to Ryan Johnson and mm-hmm. David and Dan and and etc. Across the board, right? I mean. Money talks, and if they got the money, I mean, you got to follow it. Uh, obviously, it's happening, Mike. The shift is happening. I don't think it's a sign of a failing business. I think it's a sign of a successful business. Yeah. Unfortunately yep. for us movie theater lovers, a great uh, point. I know we, sometimes we may get confused with people who don't love movie theaters. We do love movie theaters. It's just, you know, we're on the, the sidewalk the right yeah. now. In, in rags and just uh, babbling <laughs> spit on our lower lip because we just can't stop yelling about the, the danger to movie theaters yeah. right now. And Steven Spielberg used to be the guy with the limousine who'd throw a, a, a couple of quarters into our hat <laughs> and would help us out. But now he's just speeding past tinted windows yep. and won't stop anymore. We see somebody literally writing on a wall and uh, we're trying to call it out. And Damn it. It's uh, it's falling flat, but yeah, I think that's a great point by you. And uh, it, it, money is, and deals and movie theaters are all more to come in this episode. But let's roll on and talk about uh, some Academy and other award season news, Mike. Yeah, the Baftas they set their date. Not big news, but they're going to be March thirteenth. That's two weeks before March twenty seventh. And if you're wondering. That's a in terms of recent history. That's a customary date because the BAFTAs have been two weeks before the Oscars. That hasn't 
always been the case. It was uh, one week before mm-hmm. the Oscars in 2020. Every other year since we've been doing it, it's been two weeks. So things are at least aligning up at the end of our award season, our you know, kind of extra month-long award season next uh, next uh, winter, Mike. I'll take an extra one month over an extra two because those extra, those last four weeks especially, I mean, Man, I know it was a pandemic, but it was it was tough to get through, and I, I feel like all of us are just starting now to like recover and embrace the, the excitement of movies coming back into theaters and stuff like that. Uh, you know, so what despite do what we're you really think it. of Nomadland? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, the Academy Board of Governors will be majority female for the first time in the Academy's history. We have the results of their elections, their Board of Governor elections, 31 women have been elected to the 54-person board. 17 seats are up for grabs this cycle. 13 changed. Suzanne Beer, Beyer was re-elected in the director's branch there. Uh, other notable new governors, we have Rita Wilson becoming a governor of the actor's branch, but 31 women, and this is, uh, this is a big day, historic day for the uh, Academy. You got to tip your hat to the Academy, too. As of a couple of years ago, in 2016, after come the 2016 show especially, they said, you know... <laughs> we're going to hold ourselves accountable. We, we hear you. We, we, sh- we are at least are saying we're as outraged as you are, but their, their proof is in the pudding. Actions always speak louder than words. And they've made at least on the surface on its face, some real changes. It seems like. So all the old men who've been screwing it up <laughs> since we started, we can hopefully no longer blame and we hopefully no longer have to. So yeah. ladies, please fix this mess. <laughs> please, please do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of proud of them, especially in the wake of some other huge bodies uh, paying lip service and doing nothing. I, I, I commend the Academy it, it, for what they've done thus far. Asterisk. Get it in a soundbite <laughs> without the asterisk. If you can edit the, before the asterisk there. Get it in a soundbite and put it all on our other social medias. Yeah. That's very positive. That's very heartening. <laughs> and uh, I'm really glad uh, to hear it. And uh, I'm glad for the Academy, like you said. I mean, for yeah. finally, they're starting to head in the right direction. Again, you know, we don't need majority female. We don't We don't need that in everybody. But we. it's, it's refreshing for once. Yeah, we don't in, need in it, this, but it's also like it's, you think it would happen at some point. Good God. <laughs> you know? Good God. Please. Thank you. Yeah. Here we go on to that aforementioned box office update michael so just came out right before we hit record today that uh, f9 the fast saga is being projected for a 60 million dollar opening weekend here in the united states it's already done very well uh, around the world it's opened in china 260 million i believe in those uh, territories i think it just expanded to australia etc but now it's finally coming to us so this is going to be a bit of a roller coaster because we did kind of lament the projections for the hitman's wife's bodyguard last weekend, Michael. Mm-hmm. That actually came to fruition, where it won 11.7 million in the number one spot uh, over the three-day weekend in a 17 million dollar five-day take. Uh, what do you think about last weekend's box office? So I think uh, just to hear the $60 million number for Fast 9, I, th- I think that's exciting. I hope it surpasses that. We'll see, and we'll see what it means from there. As far as last week's box office numbers, I would assume that number, that $11.7 million opening and a $17 million five-day rake for the Hitman's wives, bodyguards, girlfriends, lovers, aunt, <laughs> I-, I would think that's okay Former news. roommate. Right. <laughs> I would think that's okay <laughs> news for Lionsgate on the Hitman series because it opened... Only four million behind its the original in its 
the current box office climate being what it is right now. But mm-hmm. then again, the original Hitman's Bodyguards movie, I, I, oh, this is going to be a linguistic nightmare for me, but <laughs> that had a budget of $69 million, according to Wikipedia. This one, the second one, the with the wife, <laughs> it's listed somewhere <laughs> in the same 50 to $70 million range. So considering this one is a theatrical player only, and the first one only did $176 million total globally. I, I don't know that Lionsgate is really expecting a modest profit, if a profit at all. And uh, if you go through and read, apparently they're only on the hook for a third of the budget anyway. So okay. this, this kind of sounds like something they just wanted to get out. I think in normal times, you'd see an opening weekend like that, and you say, all right, hey, International comes through, mm-hmm. and the projections make some sense, and maybe it could do what the last one did even if the budget's a little more like you just you know, drew out, it should break even at the very worst. I don't know if we're living in those times, especially right now in the domestic box office, right. because the United States and Canada is included in that domestic box office. And as we just learned from reading everything we read about TIFF, which we'll cover in a minute, we don't have Canada open yet. Yeah. So th- that's another major issue. So the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard or THWB, maybe you could call it that to help you out, 25% on the tomato meter. I didn't even realize that, Michael. Like, I wasn't even paying attention to the critics on this one. So it's going to have a hard time surpassing all of that to get into profit territory. I'm rooting for it. I've considered, like, every day going to see it Mm -hmm. when I had, like, three Tribeca movies or I had, like, you know. Had to wash your hair, yeah. No, I had a Fast and Furious (laughs) four-hour movie to watch and analyze and take it. I can't wait to talk about the seventh one. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have some fun with that series. It might be some of our best work, which I don't know if I'm proud of or not. It's definitely telling, if nothing else, yes. Two Mike, Two Furious might Mm -hmm. be some of our absolute absolute best work but okay uh what do you think you do you think this is going to fall short and vod is going to have to make up the the slack for th you're kind of hitting on the the big story and at least the one that anthony the alessandro there of of uh the hollywood reporter also talked about because the 25 percent critic score at least tomato meter score again the tomato meter is it worth watching or not? Three quarters of every critic that reviewed this says that it's not worth watching. Right? So, or three quarters of every critic. Good God, three quarters of the critics. Uh, <laughs> it's not like seventy-five percent of a guy said don't see this. But so, and that's the the point that Anthony D'Alessandro was kind of saying. And he must have listened to our episode in writing this article and tried to ease our concerns directly because he talks about he, he's saying that theaters are ready to welcome back people. If you look around at, at restaurants, concerts, you know, people are willing to go outside, but there's no quality in theater yet, and that's what's going to drive the masses. Uh, there's proof by seeing the A Quiet Place 2 doing relatively strong box office numbers despite the constraints and the restrictions having to do with, with the things you just kind of touched on and talked about as well. Basically, if you want good domestic numbers, it's possible just get better movies in there. Hitman's Wives, Bodyguards, Friends, Lovers, Son isn't one of those. Anthony... Tony, Tone, if I may call you Tone. <laughs> I hope you're right, man. That's all I'll say. Because, uh, look, I, yeah, A Quiet Place 2 is now up like 100 and whatever, 30-something. 125 when I prepped this Yeah. at the domestic box office. King Kong made 100. Like, these are beacons of hope, Mike. Uh, we got Scarlett Johansson. We got Dom. And other muscular <laughs> people in the next movie that may or may not look like they're related to him. And we have, you know, Florence Pugh, who's supposed to get a torch passed mm-hmm. to her 
but not in a horror movie, so we're not afraid. We right, go. right, right. So look, we got we got stuff that I'm looking forward to seeing, and uh, that I'm I'm reinvigorated to seeing, especially the MCU. I mean, I'm loving the Loki series, loving it. So I can't wait to keep finish out with the Loki series, Mike. If you watch any one of these Disney Plus series, Loki is the one to watch, and I'm I can't wait for Black Widow. So I, I, I'm I'm hopeful but is hope enough right now right and i think that's where i kind of we, we land again on the same spot when it has to do with theaters and domestic box office and the futures and all that because like what he says is nice but he also brought to light anthony d'alessandro a couple hints like hard evidence that i think if you put the pieces together you get kind of a troubling puzzle here and it's nothing new from what we're going to be talking about because in the same article the alessandro mentions that disney plus fell short about six million of its projected subscriber total for quarter two and in the heights didn't bring in the number of subs that warner and hbo max expected it would and as a result of these kind of let down numbers this is why you're still going to see black widow and jungle cruise stay as day and date releases with disney plus and wb is going to keep the likes of dune doing the same as well he says all that what he doesn't mention is the first thing I thought of when I read that, like, why would these studios stop doing this? Because mm-hmm. if you go back to our conversation last week about how much trouble theaters are in, obviously Disney, Warner, any of these major streamers aren't happy with their subs. Aren't they just going to keep putting out better and newer content to not only attract, but more importantly, keep the new subscribers that they have? And if that happens, theaters are going to need to hope that these first test cases of post-pandemic day and simultaneous releases like Cruella and the Godzilla vs. Kong they better hope that these domestic numbers that we're getting off of these are only a result of a public slow to return to movie theaters after the end of a pandemic and not like a harbinger of viewing preferences to come. Yeah, I, I don't see the day and date stuff working long term, period. End of story. I'm on the record. I went on my rant last and that's week. The problem. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, if it, yeah. so if day and date doesn't work, like we've gotten every indication, I think, from every major studio so far of which what? Like 70% of the major ones in Hollywood are, are more concerned with a streaming network right now than they are with or should be with theaters. If push comes to shove, we've gotten no indication that a major studio is going to actually prefer to help a theater over well, that's the something thing. to help their own streaming network. Yeah, I, let me be clear. I think it's working out okay for the studios. Uh, of course, exactly. Hand. Right. I, I don't think it's working for the business model uh the theatrical business model and for the movie theaters i think the movie theaters are going to go under if you keep doing this because michael uh, i looked at some yearly numbers and some Mm -hmm. monthly numbers going back to june and it is just i mean what we're doing now parallels in comparison to what they did back when 2019's june grossed a cumulative 1.1 billion at the domestic box office we are now three weeks through 2021's june or when i prepped this a couple days ago and we have grossed only 244 million that's roughly 21 percent of a normal june or at least 2019's june so we are not merely crying wolf here i i think the fact that these day and dates of some of the only good product that we've had i mean i let uh, i'll be on exceptions quiet place two exceptions mm. some great indie films that have just focused on movie theaters most of it has been serving two masters and people have been staying home to watch things and opting to stay home instead of going back and patroning their local theater even if they do think it's safe and we've admitted as much ourselves mike mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the drum we've been beating here for sure. I don't, and look, the easy, the easy argument with that is, well, it's, 
you know, people still aren't going places. It's the pandemic. We're just getting out of it. Okay, part of that's true. Part of that isn't. I mean, look at the Foo Fighters opening up Madison Square Garden with a concert that was, you know, yeah. packed. Sporting events are packed right now. Which we said was happening, too. Right. Once they got out of their living rooms where they've been watching movies right. nonstop, right. watching TV nonstop, are they going to a movie theater? Well, yeah, some of us will. Some of us should. And, and many of you will get back there. I just hope there's movie theaters for you to get back to after you do your, uh, your rumspringer at uh, the <laughs> Foo Fighters or whatever silly, you know, revelry you, you'd like to take out there in the open space and open air. <laughs> Bebopping with the... Oh, stop. <laughs> the Pecan Sandies. Want to bop with your children. Uh, well, that goes into, I mean, the, the fear we have for theaters is kind of going into the next story here anyway, which is Pacific Theaters filing Chapter 7 to liquidate yeah. assets to creditors. They are, Pacific Theaters are the ones who owned uh, or were attached to many theaters out there on the West Coast. So in, in terms of a quick little, I don't know, economics, math, bankruptcy, law, <laughs> law class, we, you've heard about a billion types of bankruptcy. I can't keep them straight. So let's have a quick 30-second crash course. Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, you've heard a lot of businesses do that. That's generally reorganization. Uh, an entity saddled with debt usually works with creditors to figure out how they'll pay back what they owe. Chapter mm. 13 is another form of bankruptcy, basically a hard and fast payment plan for a three- to five-year period. I think this only applies to people and not corporations or businesses. I could be wrong, but it's also been about 10 years since I worked with a bankruptcy firm, so ironically sue me if i'm wrong uh, all right what happened here with uh with pacific theaters is a chapter seven and what chapter seven is is an entity telling their creditors basically look we're done as a business we're handing over whatever assets we have to an intermediary that intermediary is going to divide sell our assets divide the money up to all of you and that'll be take care of our debt with all of you hmm. uh, so that's sadly where we're at with pacific theaters now a couple of their notable properties, the Grove in L.A. and the Americana in Glendale, both of those seem to already be going to AMC. AMC, if you read the tea leaves of what's going on in the trades out there, AMC already started promotion with those theaters, and then the theaters pulled back the promotion because I guess something wasn't official, but it seems like those are going to AMC. There's other major chains already eyeing other Pacific-owned properties, uh, but they're major chains because this is chapter and verse, the first step into the inevitable conglomerate takeover of theaters I've been preaching about for the past 18 months happening right before our eyes. But anyway, uh, people want to know what's happening with the two biggest theaters on the West Coast that have shut down, those being the Cinerama Dome and the Arclight right. Hollywood. Those two uh, were actually owned by, I think, a, a separate company other than Pacific, but hmm. they are also obviously shut down now. And AMC did just raise another 200 plus million dollars in capital and liquid cash, which, you know, thanks to Reddit is easy for them to do right now with that inflated stock price and that stock valuation. But they, uh, they've said publicly they are earmarking that money for new theater opportunities, but they have not passed comment directly on the Cinerama Dome or the Arclight. Netflix has also refused to comment, but I can't imagine those two landmark theaters would be Hell, be closed for long if the big corporations are coming in around LA and scooping up theaters as seems to be the case right now so here's what I'm rooting for I'm rooting for chains to buy those premium you know uh, uh, locations I guess mm -hmm. and, and we saw we saw Regal scoop up the Sherman Oaks mm -hmm. Arclight location I, I, that was a deadline story Mike Yep. and it, I guess the Cinerama Dome and Arclight Hollywood, those would be two, you know, other, you know, iconic 
locations. Sure. That hopefully, if it's not AMC, some movie theater business people buy and they start making money off of again because I, those are high traffic areas that need to be making money for you. So it, I, I would feel better if the movie chains bought them. Right now, I do not feel great. And the fact that the you said Reddit people, again, I, I've been following this story kind of from a distance, <laughs> but I get it. Like, people are getting the stock market prices up like crazy. Is that real money or is that fake money? Is there you're a asking the wrong. Listen, what? I don't think any money's real. So you're asking the wrong guy. Oh I think this God, is all the Matrix. You, oh, no. I got a Sundance documentary for you then. <laughs> Can't oh, wait no. to talk about it. No, I don't want to talk about that one. I purposely <laughs> didn't ever brought it up. But okay, Jesus, we have uh, we have one of those. So, look, I think uh, the fact that uh, you know so much about these bankruptcies is is helpful and is on brand for us. And I appreciate the lesson because I didn't know anything about that, and I didn't know it was that kind of dire that the chapter well, seven is is even worse. And it's even it, it sucks even more so because like. The saving grace, I think, is what you just said. Let a big corporation who's in the movie business come in and buy all these up. That sucks to me because you're just not going to have a local theater anymore. That's what's going to happen here. It's either going to be a major chain like an AMC who's an international player or it's going to be, if it's not AMC, then it's going to be a conglomerate. Like I keep preaching, like the, yeah. the local indie theater is dying. Not saying that, you know, Pacific theaters weren't their own kind of corporation, but like the independent run cinema, I think, is just knocking on death's door soon. Yeah, uh, I, that's not what I meant. What I what I meant was kind of like let's have a movie theater business take over and not like Amazon or Netflix just buy it to have like a, just a gem. Yeah. To do like yeah. 10 I, I don't a disagree. Year. I don't. Like, disagree. I don't want that. I don't want Netflix buying another prestige theater here and those. Lesser but I don't think either, those but... are the, the. But these are high traffic areas. This is your multiplex, but the elite multiplexes in Hollywood, California. There, right. so. Uh, LA, etc. So I think uh, and I hope movie theater people take over and start making money off of that. If it if it has to be a bigger corporation, I'll go with the lesser of two evils right. at this point. So I get I get I get what you're saying as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a rough rough beat. But while the movie theater business is getting scary, we still have a booming virtual film festival market Mike. We have a booming film festival landscape, and we got a lot of news with some film festivals right at the top of this second sec uh, section here. Yeah, so let's today. let's talk about some film festival selections to start, and we'll talk about one of our favorites to talk about. Toronto announced its first wave of selections uh, just today, I believe, either the last day or two here as we record this on the 23rd, for what should be uh, a festival at TIFF with over 100 films in a hybrid presentation. There will again be a virtual component this year. So my top takeaway from this story is that Netflix is now doing back-to-back -back film festivals. We just yeah. heard that they're going to Venice with the power of the dog, and now they're going to TIFF with the starling. That's Melissa McCarthy versus a bird, and it's a dramedy. It's a I drama. believe Will Ferrell plays the bird. No, go ahead. <laughs> and then we have The Guilty, which is Jake Gyllenhaal, 911 operator, Antoine Fuqua movie. Mm -hmm. So Netflix going to Venice and now Toronto. So I didn't read up on this. I would imagine this means they're in competition in Toronto. I mean, they put up yep. the big stink about wanting to be in competition, yeah. right? So they they're they're fighting for prizes here. I'm sure. I mean, they're in competition at Venice, right? Power of the Dog. So I, I I didn't double check that, but I'm this is like the early announcement where a dozen films are kind of announced. So maybe we'll we'll figure out what's in competition. But they, that's an audience award anyway. The Grolsch mm -hmm. 
You ever have Grolsch? <laughs> it's beautiful beer? with a side of sour cream, yeah. Yeah. Is that a real yeah. thing? No, it's a real thing. It's a oh. German beer. It's wonderful. It's, it's oh, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my sour mm-hmm. cream joke kind of worked then. It did work. Schnitzel. Uh, that's right. I love schnitzel and beer. <laughs> Mike, the rest of the slate at TIFF is also loaded. We have Dune, which is doing Venice, now going to TIFF. Again, Dune is putting itself in front of a lot of people yeah. heading into its uh, theatrical and day What? Open. In the Heights? Never heard of it. Where's Dune? <laughs> <laughs> Last night in Soho, a good sign, because this is Edgar Wright feeling confident, putting his movie in the film festivals. Sure. Before it hits theaters again early in the fall, we have Kenneth Branagh's Belfast alliteration. We have Celine Shiama's follow-up to A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, Matt Negley, etc. They've reviewed this at Berlin. This was a big hit there at Berlin. Celine Shiama's Petite Maman. I did not pronounce that right. There's no way that's how it's pronounced. It's probably I'm pronounced. Start calling Bebe you around here. And he was, your nickname's no. going to be Petite Maman from now on. <laughs> okay. Those are the big names, and it's it's cool that we got uh, some narrative announce big uh, narrative feature announcements there. We got a couple other films that are, are curious. There's a zombie movie. There's a couple of them. Uh, we got a two uh, documentaries announced. One on Dion Warwick, and the other on Alanis Morissette as well. So Tiff has done a good job with docs. This is cool. I mean, this is a a, a loaded festival already. Even if that's the the best that we get, I'm sure we're going to get a ton more though. A hundred films. Yeah, there's. Uh... This festival season is going to be crazy for a couple of reasons, not least of which is the quality and quantity of films that are playing all these, how the festivals are going to handle them. And TIFF is always a big one. TIFF, tell your ride, all these ones that we've talked about, I mean, they just seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're definitely going to have a lot to talk about as the months go on here and we get uh, into a serious award season and, uh, you know, maybe not one that's won by Nomadland. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, let's. <laughs> I, that was a joke, by the way. I don't hate Nomadland. Just hated Nobody the year. Nobody hates Nomadland, but you you have a lot of hate in you. <laughs> Look, at, this is a ridiculous question, but it just came to me, mm-hmm. and I have to say everything that comes to me on the of podcast. Of course. Because yeah. that's where, where that's we're at what they're right for, now, yeah. In our headspace. So if we are going to dress up and try and cross the border mm-hmm. illegally, right. or I should say allegedly, right? Uh, what do you think we would get away with if we were both Mounties, if I'm the, uh, I'm the back end of a, of a moose costume, uh, as Bigfoot yetis. You wouldn't want to uh, just it, cosplay as like the Rick Moranis and the other guy character from SCTV. Yeah, there, it the, like... <laughs> there it is. There it is. And then we can have beer and schnitzel. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and it all comes full circle. See, I started out silly and you, you brought us back for that. That usually goes the other way around. Right. Right. <laughs> You know, I'm happy to, to switch yang. places once in a while. <laughs> Let's talk about the Tribeca Film Festival, the recap portion here uh, for this Oscar Race Checkpoint episode. Now, Mike, you have, like you always do, watched way too many movies at yet another festival, this one via Tribeca at Home. You've actually structured yourself a mini award show here to play tribute to your favorites. So I'm going to, from now on, present awards. You will talk us through your recommendations of the awards categories that the Academy of Also Mike has done i'll try to pepper in some questions and that's how we'll kind of handle this recap of tribeca as you are i mean the point of this is to point out what's worth seeing coming out of this festival right and to just 
crush every independent filmmaker who did not <laughs> entertain. No, like, yeah, we're, we're just going to recommend 12 movies. I'm not going to talk about the movies that I hated. There was only a few. Honestly, there was only a few movies that I hated at Tribeca. I hated many, many more at Sundance. Yeah, Again, Sundance was rough for you, I feel like. We did not dedicate a full episode to mm-hmm. Sundance. I saw 39 movies at Sundance. I think I liked like eight or nine of them. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I had a, a lot of misses at Sundance. I'll be honest. My expectations were much lower for Tribeca. We we couldn't do uh, what was South by Southwest. We we opted not to do that because it was in the thick of Oscar season. Yeah. But here at Tribeca, I saw 29 features. And I, I'll be honest, I could probably recommend more like 15, 16. That's and awesome. I'm, 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 I feel good about 12 today. So, yeah, we got a little award show. That's awesome. All right. So I, let's, you know, without further ado, let's dive right in. And because, Mike, we, we've covered the home invasion genre in our latest horror movie award show, which we lovingly called The Scaries. They are one of our annual award show. Uh, we're eventually probably going to run out of topics and have to get really creative or just super dark, <laughs> one of which we're good at. Uh, you're giving an honorary... Investment s- bankers. <laughs> you're going to give an honorary scary here to the movie C for me. So indie horror, as it has for a while now, it continues to deliver, right? That's right. <laughs> this is not a movie about scary financial dealings. No. See, for me, this, Mike, as a story, it's similar to 1967's Oscar-nominated Audrey Hepburn film Wait Until Dark that we did cover uh, in that episode of The Scaries there. It's similar to Don't Breathe in, in certain ways. Hmm. But look, I, I just think this one is so much more authentic. See, for me, uh, is it stars an actual blind person as an actress who leads this film. And I did not know that when I watched the movie. And I was still saying during the whole thing, like, oh, my God, this is so much more believable than, you know, Audrey Hepburn just, you know, pretending to walk around there. And, and yeah, as good as Don't Breathe is, it was, you know, it's a bit far-fetched. Let's just be honest. So this is a movie where once you realize the heroic backstory of this non-actor turning in this excellent performance in this smartly plotted movie, I, I'm just in awe of the production as a whole. I mean, look, you have you have this 20-something house sitting for a wealthy divorcee in her mansion. There's a safe somewhere, so of course there's a home invasion of the bad guys trying to get at the safe. We've seen this done time and again. We love this format. But there's a phone app, Michael. There's a phone app after she kind of ruins her friendships with all her FaceTime calls, mm. where basically her friends are telling her, you know, all right, here's how you mem- memorize your new surroundings. Mm-hmm. She can't. She told off <laughs> her friend. Now she's got to go to a phone app, see for me, to navigate and memorize this new land, th- this new house that she's living in. And the cat oh. and all that. So it, they made it really believable. And she just so happens to call an army veteran played by Jessica Parker Kennedy of Black Sails in the Flash, who, like, just helps her navigate not only you know, before the home invasion, but after it as well. So I was just really impressed at the plotting. They stay a couple of steps ahead of my expectations the whole time. And I I just was expected to call BS from the moment the movie started, right? And I don't know. I just thought thought this movie, you know, just really worked as a a thriller, never mind a suspense film. Like, you almost go in expecting a suspense film. Right. Like, you're going to be scared for this vulnerable protagonist. No, 
this is a thriller, bona fide thriller, be all day, really cool indie horror. Early 70% on only 10 reviews by critics in the Tomato Meter, early 7.9 on the first 20 some odd reviews there on IMDb, but you did a hell of a job of selling it. Yeah, we, I mean, you know, you're next, don't breathe, those types of home invasion movies, We've there, there's an art form to them, certainly, and this one sounds like it was really well done, I'm excited for that. I love it. It's it's cool. It's you know it's not a perfect movie. I didn't give it a B plus. It's a it's a strong B all day. But it was really a, a pleasant surprise C for me. Shout out to these filmmakers: director Randall Okita, writers Adam York and Tommy Gushu. My apologies if I mispronounced that for C for me. Let's move to your two actress awards. They're going to come from the same film, Mike. Uh, you're giving Best Lead Actress to Essie Davis, who played, we know, from Baby Teeth and The Babadook. And Supporting Actress is going to go to our dear friend here, Thomas and McKenzie, of Jojo Rabbit, Leave No Trace, and this year's Old and Last Night in Soho. Both of these performances come from Australian film The Justice of Bunny King, which is in the running for Best Titled Movie of the Year for me. There you go. Essie Davis, she's been great in everything. Thomas and McKenzie have been great in everything. I, I, I just have to jump at another opportunity to praise them look i mean this movie's like a low b for me it's not a great film but their performances are are really strong in it uh essie davis plays a mother of two her children have been put into foster care because of the character's issues and problems and the fact that she can't find a job uh she can't hold a job she watches windshields all day to make money she's forced to clean her sister's entire house by night because she's staying with her sister and her brother-in-law, who's a bastard, who makes her do all these extra chores and stuff, etc., etc. So, like, The Justice of Bunny King isn't an easy watch, Mike. Mm -hmm. It's kind of one of those where it's a heavy drama, and she goes from one desperate ploy to another to try and get her kids back. And, it's, and she's kind of coming apart at the seams there. It, it gets exponentially worse when Thomas and McKenzie's character deals with a crisis. So uh, I'm really impressed with these performances. It, it held me and it, it made me emotional a few times how, how just relatable these two are. So they need to be nominated for more awards, full stop. Uh, I'm happy to praise them again here. When is Thomas and McKenzie going to do a movie that's easy to watch would be my retort. I'm just really impressed with her. I, I mean, she's awesome, but she's always in these heavy-handed things. Well, if you, th- I mean, think about a kid that I mean, she's she's young. I don't want right. to call her a kid. I don't want to be patronizing, but she's that young, and she's tackling these parts. Mm-hmm. She's going to be just a, a super duper, yeah. uh, f- a force of na- super duper star, super a force of nature in the in the academy for a while. I Definitely think. a matter of time. I agree. We've been very high. I mean, she's she's awesome. Essie Davis as well. We've had uh, glowing things to say about. So that's the Justice of Bunny King. Those get both the lead and supporting actress award from the Academy of Also Mike for the Tribeca Film Festival. Here, mm-hmm. let's move on to next uh, the next category. You're going to call this the Audience Award, even though you're only an audience of one in this instance in that's Tribeca. Right. The themselves has an audience award coming up. Yeah? I don't care. All right, right fair enough. This is my audience award. <laughs> I'm going to let you do it because you're giving it to a movie that I'm excited for and have been raving about myself. Uh, Josh Rubin doing Werewolves Within. He of, of course, college humor fame. Mm-hmm. Sam Richardson's in this one, but uh, you really enjoyed this one, Mike. I-, I love that we're getting smart new twists on the werewolf genre, Michael. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly a, a-, a werewolf sh- uh, adjacent movie, if not more than that. So, like last year, I loved the Wolf of Snow Hollow. I know, I believe I reviewed that at some point. Yes, uh, I on think our show, Jim Cummings 
And and this year we got Josh Rubin, who just did Scare Me, which was a very innovative yes. movie that I think you can watch on Shutter right yes. now. That I loved with Aya Cash there, and and Rubin himself, uh, just kind of a two uh, two person vehicle there. That was a lot of fun. Werewolves Within is an ensemble, and there are some great actors in that ensemble that you need. You need great actors and great characters and, and charismatic people to, to latch on to in a whodunit, Michael. And I was not expecting a whodunit when I turned this on. This movie's a whodunit? It's a whodunit. So I am I did not know that. Sign up for this one. It's yeah. just, it's more of a whodunit than it is like a, a horror movie, but it's a horror comedy. You got Veep Sam Richardson, he's the new small town ranger, reassigned to this tiny, snowy Vermont mountain town that's of course dealing with a series of murders. That may or may not have been committed by a lycanthrope. So, who's the werewolf? Who done it? Is the question you <laughs> you ask from the very beginning. And they're all all these characters are hilariously suspicious. And you have comedians. You have Crashing's George Basil. He is the the ex wife's boyfriend, new boyfriend, the hippie boyfriend. George <laughs> Basil. He's hilarious and Crashing. You have Barry's Sarah Burns. You have What We Do in the Shadows. Guillermo, who's just a character I love. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, Harvey Guillen, and you have uh, Milana Vaintrub. I had no idea she was an actress, like a yeah. uh, movie actress. She's She is the lead in all those AT&T commercials, and she's also a terrific actress here, so good, good on her. And then M- Michaela Watkins, amongst others, but Michaela Watkins, I love her career, everything she's done, all the David Wayne stuff. She's really funny in the new uh, hot, Wet Hot American Summer movies, and... Uh, She's just been great and everything. So, Mike, you have this charismatic cast that I wish they took. I wish Ruben took like an extra twenty minutes to let the plot play out. Mm-hmm. It gets a little uh, accelerated by the end, and I wish that he let the curtain go a little slower. But I, I just, I, I, I really had fun. I had a crowd for this one. My brothers and I watched it, and uh, it just, it worked on us. Like we were invested. We were yelling at the screen. We were guessing who did it, and. It was a lot of fun. I want to see this one so badly. Just, I mean, I've been obsessed with Josh Rubin like I am with everyone from that College Humor uh, cast from back in the day. So, yeah, I, I can't wait. And it just, it's great. It's great to see him getting uh, his serious chops as a director. It's great to see Melania Vantrub and great to see Sam Richardson, people we all enjoy watching on screen anyway. So, yeah, I can't wait. Number four, we'll move on to your best screenplay at Tribeca. You're going to give that to Hannah Marks, the writer and director of Mark, Mary, and Some Other People. So I did not expect to like this movie, Michael, because it's an awkward comedy and it's an awkward sex comedy. And I'm very prude (laughs) and I'm very standoffish. I don't like cringeworthy stuff and I just get me away. No, I really enjoyed this movie. Mark Marion, some other people is about a newly married couple who decides to have an open relationship. And again, not a movie I usually go in for, but it worked on me. I read the synopsis on IMDb right now and tried to picture (laughs) you watching this movie. And I can't, I can't. Newlyweds reluctantly decide to give ethical non-monogamy a try as their lives get increasingly comic. How did you watch this? What was your viewing setup? Uh, it was not me. It was just, well, it's just me. It's just me in front of my, on my couch, in front of my big screen at home. But 
it, it was not me turning upside down by the middle of it, which no, was the, the craziest right. part. That's what you would think. You yeah. would think I would be in the kitchen doing 10 different things, <laughs> not trying to watch it because I'm so awkward and skeeved out. No, I genuinely thought these characters are likable, believable. The dialogue really worked. That's a testament to the script. That's a testament to Hannah Marks, who is the writer and the director. It's it's funny. They're charismatic. I'm really rooting for Riverdale's Haley Law. I'm really rooting for Ben Rosenfield, who I know from uh, Boardwalk Empire. You know, him, you know him from a lot of stuff. Uh, this movie reminded me a bit of Plus One. It's not as you know set up punchline jokey mm-hmm. as as some other comedies, but there's definitely some situations here that are that are funny. And there's, I, I just thought it kind of worked as a drama. So I think that uh, it's a testament to the writing. So Mark, Mary, and some other people, strong B all day. I think you're four for four in terms of uh, suggesting things that are at least going to tackle some sort of intrigue or some angle of intrigue that people have. Whether you want something scary, you want something funny, you want something lighthearted, you want something a little more serious. That's kind of cool. I, this next one, too. Just you wait. All right, so let's talk about your breakthrough performance of the festival here, Mike. You're going to give that to former WBA boxing champion turned screenwriter actor here, Callie, Kaylee Rays, I apologize if I mispronounced that. Catch the Fair One is the movie, though. Yeah, Callie Rays, I believe it is. And, Mike, you know I'm a big fan of the tale of the tape, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when I have a movie about athletics, and I, I tend to struggle with actors who play athletes, but they're not right. athletic. It right. drives me a little bit. can nuts. never watch any baseball movie ever with somebody who's in the, doing a pitching motion when they've clearly never seen a baseball, yeah. That's right. And, and loose... Would have been an A, a if not for him not being a track star. Anyway, <laughs> Catch the Fair One has the real McCoy, the genuine article. Callie Rays is a former boxing champion, and her character here is like a flame out with boxing. Characters had trouble, troubles in her life, and, and most of all, her sister was kidnapped by a sex trafficking crime syndicate. So here she is, her character is basically infiltrating through her trainers through her box the people she still knows in boxing infiltrating this crime syndicate to try and find out where the sister is and this movie kind of starts out with one of those 2000s angry dad premises right dad revenge movie liam neeson uh and taken or Choi min sook of old boy mm-hmm. you start out one of those revenge premises uh but it's not like this exercise in borderline toxic masculinity you have native american older sister callie rays uh portraying the part former boxer just using her wits using everything she can kicking ass taking names just one uh one disastrous nightmare character after another that she's got to go toe-to-toe with so this is harrowing terrifying mike i don't get this way often with movies anymore but this movie literally had me on the edge of my seat. It's another movie I watched with other people, and we were yelling at the screen because this was just, like, getting us that hyped no up. shit. Blood was up. This is a B-plus all day. Uh, maybe, maybe it surprised me. I, I don't know, but I tell you what. I think this, this movie was badass. This was intense. And uh, I don't think it quite stuck the landing. So, again, this is, like, high marks for the first 90% of it. Or for ninety percent of it, I would say, and it's I don't have a problem with just the last ten percent, but there's like a few scenes that bother me. Otherwise, like I think the the atmosphere it gives you, the the overall feel, the not in your stomach. I, I don't get that that often. That's that's filmmaking there. So yeah. this is a 
this is there's some talent uh, from these people on display. Be bleep. B-plus all day. That's really, really cool to hear, especially for someone who watches as much of everything as you do, that the, there's something in this festival that can give you that sort of feeling. So shout out there to the filmmaker Joseph Kubota Wadika of Catch the Fair One for doing such a nice job with Callie Rays and mm-hmm. her first script. Uh, all right, let's continue to get into the stuff you have graded at a B-plus here. You're calling this next award your hidden gem. That means it vastly exceeded your expectations, so it must have felt like a discovery to you. Your Tribeca mm-hmm. hidden gem, Michael, is Poser. What can you tell us about Poser? So literally, the day after we recorded a podcast where not once but twice you referenced <laughs> a single white female, that is the com- the, the comp, right? Mm-hmm. For uh, for Poser, based on Kate Erbland's IndieWire review where she called it single white female punk. And I just thought that <laughs> was so cool. It's like, you know, serendipity, I guess. Uh, if, if ever serendipity and single white female could be used in the same <laughs> sentence, I just did. But, yeah, my poser is like this creepy, stylish thriller about like this 20-something podcaster. Oh, I wonder why I liked it. <laughs> Younger version of uh, somebody, you know, I, I, I thought I was cool while watching this, maybe because I related to her right, so much. exactly. Creepy. Pretty podcaster, Lennon, who's a musician herself, and she wants to interview all these musicians of the Columbus, Ohio indie music, indie rock scene. And what's awesome about this, Mike, is that Poser has all of these actual real-life Columbus, Ohio musicians in it. And these are the real musicians. That's the dope. Real, like You can look them up on Spotify, which I did after watching the movie, and I've been kind of obsessed with their music for the last week and a half. And they build this plot around the best song of the movie, my favorite song of the movie. I think I think the kids pronounce it as an acronym, W-Y-D, and the band is W-Y-D, Wid by Wid. It's not Wid by Wid. It's got to be W-Y-D, What You Doing. We're so old. We're so old. But, <laughs> and I'm not, but look, this movie made me feel cool because I did discover – I felt like I discovered it and – it, it, it really does work, but there's some awesome performances by some young actors here. Sylvie Mix, Bobby Kitten, uh, I, I won't say anything more. Just, yeah, check out this movie, B-plus all day, Hidden Gem. Uh, shout out to the filmmakers behind po- Opposer, Noah Dixon, Ori Segev, Segev, excuse me. We will learn your name because you guys got some chops. That, this is really, yeah, there's definitely a difference between what I'm getting out of you from Tribeca versus some other uh, films that you watch at different festivals because, like, you can tell the excitement that these are hitting you with and you're doing, I mean, I, I want to watch that absolutely now without question. Like, I'm I might have been grumpy. I might have been grumpy at Sundance because I was watching, like, I took time. Because you were in the 18th month of a 19-month awards year? <laughs> Maybe. It might have been that. But it's just and me, right? I was watching like six movies a day. Look, I, I was still I was still underwhelmed by Sundance. Right. And here I am, overwhelmed. I, like, right. I'm pleasantly surprised by these movies I'm watching at Tribeca. So, yep. Very cool to see and very cool to hear. Uh, hopefully people are taking notes and making their own lists like I am as you're going through this. Let's move on to your best director of... Wow. Let's move on to your best director of all of Tribeca's Film Festival. This film also won the big prize, The Novice, 
took home the award for Best U.S. Narrative Feature, something Alice Wu and the half of it did last year, which was mm-hmm. an also-Mike favorite of 2020. And this was an award that Kent Jones and Diane won back in 2019, a film that was one of my favorites of that loaded year. So this award does have a history. It also has an, a history alongside MMO here. And you're going to want to honor the director of The Novice, Michael. Lauren Hathaway is your best director. So I have not seen The Sport of Crew the sport of rowing or boating. I don't know how to pronounce it. I believe it's rowing. I have not seen crew made this cinematic since David Fincher did all those Vinklevoss twin <laughs> sequences in the social network. Sure. So this was really fun. Cool. Uh, the Novice is essentially about uh, a walk-on freshman rower played by Isabel Furman, who is like obsessed at becoming the best. Uh, and this story becomes a more realistic black swan like without all of the you know the the, the crazy horror stuff right 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 it's without the, like all the trippy. trippy stuff yeah this is like a sports drama about this young woman trying to earn herself a varsity seat and she's got rivals and she's got uh b stories with with romantic uh characters that i am I'm also in awe of in terms of their acting ability. She's got single name power, Mike. She's Delone, and I think she's a potential star with some real uh, chops here. Uh, you also have Amy Forsythe, who plays another character on the team that I've been seeing everywhere. She was in Beautiful Boy. She was in We Summon the Darkness. I don't know if you watched that movie, which is kind of not great, but she was really good in it. And she's in Coda coming out that I did huh. one of the few movies I yeah. did really love at Sundance. So Amy Forsyth, Isabel Furman, uh, I, I'm a big fan of sports movies in general, as you know, as we've talked about many times. And this movie landed as this character study, as this drama. I thought it really hit home with me because I had a past life as an athlete where I, you know, kind of got too intense and flamed out. <laughs> <laughs> spectacularly so is that is that where the, yeah. the is that the target audience you think of this too is this is it just like the uh is this in the vein of speaking to the athlete or is it in the vein of speaking to the uh why can't i think of the oscar winner there jk simmons with the drum hmm. set miles teller yeah it reminded me a little bit of whiplash thank even you even though it's not a uh it's not a coach right. versus you know uh, athlete movie it is definitely uh, in terms of a you know teammate versus teammate movie, it's definitely a, a person that is just going too far, and at as a freshman <laughs> of all things. So, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the novice. Uh, I thought the direction was stellar because it's like nonstop montage, like it's one workout sequence after another, right? And it's nonstop. You know, they're racing, they're working out. She's and then she's trying to navigate her her life and her and her and her student life and her romantic life, and it's just. She knows when to pick it up, and she knows when to slow it down. And as Eric Weber said on our show, when he's when he's watching these movies, he's looking for compositions that work. Mm-hmm. And to me, The Novice is a composition that worked. It felt lived in. It felt believable. Really good pacing. So cool. I, again, Mike, the excitement of, of you and all of these is, is definitely jumping off. I was, I was going to say the page, but that doesn't make sense for people listening to this. So I guess the, the radio, the, the, au- the aux... It's jumping off something is my point, and you could tell that it's palpable. I in am your hyping voice. you up for you to be disappointed at all. I, I can't wait. One of my way. favorite pastimes is yelling at you <laughs> for getting me 
too excited for no i i seriously it, it, you can you can tell that there's some goods delivered here so kudos to lauren hadaway who wins your best director award there let's move into our final category which is best documentary now i've seen a lot of people talking about this one mm-hmm. uh but it's another year where you if you're going to be like anything you were last year and the year before are going to watch a ton and have probably watched a ton of documentaries So let's talk about your first four nominations for this award and eventually what wins it. This first one is the one I was saying. I know a lot of people that saw this and have high things to say about it. Yeah, I saw a lot of good documentaries at Tribeca. I saw a few at Sundance, but I'm over 35 on the year thus far. And Roadrunner is the new film uh, from Morgan Neville. It's called Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Morgan Neville did 20 Feet of Stardom, uh, from Stardom. Uh, he won the Oscar for that. Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? He should have won the Oscar for that, mm-hmm. Michael. <laughs> no question. <laughs> so Morgan, he knows what he's doing. And he tackled a subject here. When he started, he didn't, I don't think he thought he was going to be dealing with it the way he dealt with it because he's interviewing Anthony Bourdain right. for, for a year before Anthony Bourdain has that heart-wrenching ending to his life. And I give Neville a lot of credit for addressing the issue head on you have the opening 10 minutes and then you have the 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 final 30 minutes where i mean yeah it's very sad but all of anthony bourdain's friends some of his family a lot of his co-workers are wrestling with what happened with his suicide with this issue with his life they're trying to celebrate him but they're mad at him they're of course my god it's a gamut of emotions human very human it's it's another incredible uh, you know archival footage doc from Morgan Neville, and I just yeah you can't help but give it a B, give it a high grade all day. B is a high grade for me, and I, I can't help but give it a high grade. And it, it was quite the experience. Uh, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Like I said, something that not only you but I've seen a lot of people speak very very highly of for that one. Well, uh, so what's nomination number two here, Mike? Yeah, I'm, basically, I'm, I'm giving five nominations, and then I'm going to pick a winner. But yeah, The Kids. The Kids, Michael, is a documentary about all the street kids of the 1990s New York City skateboarding scene that, in another life, Mike One is probably a, a, a character in, correct? <laughs> no, these kids ended up getting cast in a $22 million indie film blockbuster for yeah. then was a blockbuster this is like a micro budget film from harmony corrine and larry clark called kids that became a worldwide phenomenon unfortunately but also became a sad story for some of these hard drinking hard partying yeah. teenagers who were just downright exploited exploited by this miramax film so you have kind of their lives heading miramax the exploiting people yeah yeah, the centerpiece of the documentary, which is kind of a production story of the making of this movie, Kids, and then you kind of have all their epilogues, where all these actors went. A lot of them went to Hollywood, some of them stayed in New York, what went on with their lives, who didn't make it, who got their lives back on track, and who made it. There's a lot of success stories in there as well. It's just definitely a movie to check out if you have you know, nostalgia for the 90s, but certainly if you have you know, any interest... Uh, in, in making of uh, production stories and whatnot. This is just absolutely fascinating, and uh, I, I, I recommend the kids. It, it really, like, set Harmony Kareen's career on the path that, uh, that, I mean, Spring Breakers, all those movies yeah. that he did, like, it really set him off, and that's the, the other side of the coin. I read recently one of the uh, 
one of the subjects of that uh, the movie, one of the subjects of Kids, was actually interested in suing Kareen for what he did and feeling like it was exploitation. So a lot of sides to that story, certainly. Yeah. I imagine that's quite fascinating. Uh, Mike, tell me about The First Step. So The First Step is a documentary about CNN's Van Jones. Okay, so he's certainly a notable lawyer, right? He's got a history as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He's taken on a lot of huge, big cases back in the day. He's an activist, and now he's like, a political pundit that well he before that he was working for the obama administration becomes a political pundit on cnn's election coverage night famously called trump's election a white lash so this is a man who's pitted himself against the republican establishment and the first step is a documentary about how van jones worked with republicans republican lawmakers and jared kushner of all people worked uh, step uh, for step with Republicans to pass a bipartisan uh, criminal justice reform bill called the First Step Legislature, and, and how the hell this all turns out, and how the hell Democrats take it, I don't know. All I know, Michael, is I watch this movie, and I come away very conflicted, because they show both sides. They show all the criticisms, and we hear all the criticisms of Van Jones, mm-hmm. and then we're also like following van jones around so you can't help but relate to van jones and you see a lot of his mistakes where he he admits his mistakes where he kind of validates some of kushner and 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 where they're going and 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 how he kind of disrespects the movement leading up to that he admits a lot of that but he, he also he gets tens of thousands of guys out of jail by the end of it and you get criminal justice uh, you, you get the jails with better facilities by the end of it. You get real reform. So I'm just, I'm very torn, and I think that's what the documentary is trying to do. I can't help but give this strong B+, plus, strong recommendation, the first step. It's a complicated issue. I, I follow Van Jones on uh, my personal Twitter, and, I mean, uh, he took a lot of heat in, in just Twitter heat. comments over the last couple of years uh, for trying to reach across the aisle and that, and... He, it is a, I mean, you know, you are supposed to feel torn, I think. I think it's a threshold issue, and you don't really know which, what's the right move there. Do you, you know, is it better to kind of try to work in unison with the devil you know, or is it better to try and protect others from the devil? I don't know, but that certainly makes for a fascinating uh, documentary and for facts to be presented in that way, I would think. So, yeah, okay, certainly something I'm going to check out, no doubt. Yeah, I, I really want to hear your thoughts on it, because, I mean, obviously you've had the background, you've had the legal background mm. in there, and... Uh, this this is one required viewing. Let me know when you yeah. when you watch the first step. Uh, I want to hear, I want to hear all. We'll do. Things. And Van Jones, wildly intelligent, by the way, wildly intelligent yes. guy. Uh, all right. So a movie you don't have any reservations about whatsoever is All These Sons, which tells the story of men's group in Chicago that tries to curb gun violence. Be still, my heart. Right. Uh, this these guys are doing heroic work, and and they don't necessarily come from heroic uh, origin stories. Mike, we have the leader of this church group or at least in, in the movie, in the room, right, in, the, in, in most of the rooms where they're just counseling these young men, he killed a famous high school basketball player. He had served 20-plus years in prison. I forget the length of his prison sentence. Mm. But he killed a famous Chicago basketball player that was turned into a 30-for-30 30 30 that I watched like two months yeah, ago. Yeah, and it was so sad. So I can't, I can't believe like it comes full circle like that. Life comes full circle like that. But I guess it does because this former murderer is dedicating the rest of his life to help these young men and this 
This church group is led by a husband and wife from Bates and Bowden College up in Maine that I that I, I know a lot of people from there. And this couple is leading this uh, this uh, church group that um, that that not only counsels these guys every day, but they they feed them, they they shelter them if they need shelter, they they help them uh, get off of drugs if they need to get off of drugs, and of course, and most importantly, they got all these educational programs. They guys get their GEDs, guys get uh, you know uh, trade training, <laughs> you know, and they, and they put it's them awesome. on site, and these guys are working their asses off both in the program and outside the program, running the program, they're working these ass, their, their asses off for their community, and they're, they're earning some hard-fought success. So this is a what's been a hopeless situation, Chicago of gun violence, mm. over the years. And this is an uplifting documentary that I, it brought tears to my eyes. All these sons, check it out. I hope the Academy checks it out. Well, that's what so I was going to say. Nomination. Yeah, yeah, this sounds, I mean, this is when we've, Lord knows, we've analyzed this category at the Academy for years now, but this certainly sounds, when we keep landing on, you know, something that's a serious issue that can provide a bright line at the end of it, but there's still seriousness and it shows there's still work to be done. That's usually where the Academy kind of nestles this category yep. lately. So this kind of sounds like it might be in the sweet spot there. Never mind all the great things that it sounds like it's accomplishing uh, within it. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll be viewed as too political. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Does it concentrate on the politics of the gun, guns issues? Not really. Okay, not really, good. But, but since when has that been of a problem with the Academy? It might be a problem for overall box mm-hmm. office, but... For the Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm rooting for it. All these sons, I feel like, is a legit Oscar contender, and this next one, uh, for for happier reasons, for much happier even reasons, I think, I hope, is also a contender. Mike, the lost Leonardo got my highest grade, A minus grade that I gave out at Tribeca, and look, I don't want to talk too much about it, but if you do not know the story of the quote unquote lost Leonardo da Vinci painting. Salvador Mundi, Salvatore Mundi, excuse me. I'm Italian, I can't even pronounce it. This is from Sony Pictures Classics, and don't read up on the story. And I know I'm talking to you, Mike. I'm listening. <laughs> don't read up on the story if you don't know it. Just watch the documentary when it comes out. Everybody can watch it for $12. It, it's playing at uh, AFI Docs after Tribeca, so you can watch it online if you want, or you can wait till August. I believe it comes out in theaters early August. This is The Lost Leonardo. It, it takes like three different too crazy to be true storylines and it just totally spellbinds you i had goosebumps i finished the film like i was just like sitting in this emotional state where i was so hyperbox like is that an a or am i is it a b plus what should i rank this i kind of came to the middle it's like a minus i'm gonna watch it again at this next film festival i'm doing afi docs i'll hopefully see it like a dozen films i got the film pass there it's a reasonable number i don't think they i think they sold out though but i think it was like 70 bucks so afi docs i'm excited I'm gonna, i'll probably watch 12 or 15 movies over the next 10 days when I'm not watching Fast and Furious movies. So, <laughs> good, best movie, good dichotomy. The best movie at Tribeca is, without a doubt, easily The Lost Leonardo. Wow. And this should be an Oscar contender for best documentary. I am terrified to say as much because every favorite documentary right. that I come to love, <laughs> and I loved a bunch leading up to this. I had a category of five, and I saved this for last. <laughs> documentaries were awesome at tribeca the lost leonardo was the best one uh for commercial reasons as much as anything else it also hits on some important issues my god economic issues global government issues you you have to see this and if you've seen tenant 
there's like a whole area of tenant that I saw that I thought was just fake or whatever. It's real. I had no idea. <laughs> Christopher Nolan based this whole setup on a, on a real thing these art dealers are doing right now to just kind of just move money around, launder money. But yeah. You've either struck gold at this film festival <laughs> or you're doing too good of a job and I am going to come back and yell at you at some point because I don't think there was a single title amongst any of these I mean, maybe if I don't want to cry to Thomas and Mackenzie again for the billionth time, I'll avoid that one. But other than Justice of Bunny King, for, for reasons that are have to do more with me than the film, I don't think there's a single one here I don't want to watch of all these that you highlighted. Great job by you. and Great job by uh, Tribeca getting these films together. I, I thank you, and I'm sorry. And <laughs> no, but I, no, they, I, I think these films are worthy of being promoted, and uh, Tribeca Film Fest, great job. I, I'm surprised. It was called the Tribeca Festival because they did a lot of other stuff that I just didn't have time for. Comedy, the concert, I, I, I didn't do any of that other stuff. <laughs> I watched about 30 movies and 29, and yeah, I, I had a lot, 12, that I really liked. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, they had an AHA movie. Venus as a Boy was really stylish. Uh, movie about these uh, two, two young lovers in California. Uh, Mike, there's a lot of movies that were really worth watching at uh, Tribeca, and I, I'm pleasantly surprised. Very glad, much. glad to hear that. Glad to hear the reviews from them. Glad to hear that some of them have Oscar's legs and some of them are just true hidden gems that could be cult favorites later on. And I mean, it just gives us, you know, it's another, you know, we're get, we're, we're going to be okay. We're getting back to movie theaters may not be, but the film industry, <laughs> at least it sounds like, is, is getting back to normal at large. So uh, that's really cool to see. And hopefully also, Mike, just kind of loaded up your two watch list with a lot of uh, 12 or so suggestions there, if not more. I mean, do maybe it. 15 that you got to get to coming out of Tribeca. And it's all stuff that we will keep an eye on as this film year chugs along. Uh, as always is the case here, dear listener, is we want to hear what you think. Did you partake in any of these films at Tribeca or were there any other highlights if you did do the virtual Tribeca experience let us know as well as your thoughts on anything else we covered in this episode or in the MMO empire at large you can leave us all those thoughts comments and questions and concerns on our social medias we are Mike Mike and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter Mike Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit we are available everywhere you hear podcasts you happen to be listening to us on the Apple podcast app uh, if you would be so kind as to you know leave us a five-star review somehow i used to be able to describe how i can't anymore they changed That's things right. so if you can let know. me know how to do that that'd be great but uh yeah. leave us a five-star review if you're able to that'd be that'd be awesome mike what are some words of wisdom for the good people and what's coming next from mmo well it's wise to i mean this is proof of it it's wise to investigate movies that you probably wouldn't give a try yeah. uh, otherwise and it you, you'll you'll have that feeling of discovery whether it's a band whether it's a whether it's a movie, whether it's a TV series, or that you come across it on a streaming service, or just go uh, and, and blind buy it as a as a physical piece of physical media, or you go to the movie theaters, yeah, just go. Don't just live and die with the tomato meter. Just go check something out. You may hate it, and you may hate the person who recommended it, and I'm willing to be hated. <laughs> but you also you might you might you might really like it. So I'll be honest with you. I went out and I sought out other reviews. Like I said. Uh, IndieWire's been doing a great job covering these film festivals. Kate Erbland, somebody I trust. I, I checked out. I checked out Poser for that reason, and I love Poser. And I still felt like I discovered the movie, and I was obsessed with it for the rest of the day. Like I was watching these movies back to back to back every night, mm -hmm. and I stopped watching 
for that movie in particular. So I, was like, oh, I just got to listen to music for a couple hours, which I haven't done in you know, months. <laughs> so that, that was so cool. cool. That's I mean, so things cool. like that happen. So it's wise to just blindly go and check out new movies, and that's that's still an impulse. Hopefully, all of you have and and do it. It's also wise to check out our next episode, which will be getting back to the Fast and Furious. Like I said earlier. <laughs> Maybe some of our best work. Two sides of the coin. Very serious film criticism <laughs> and fast and furious. <laughs> two Mike, Two Furious is a mini series. We have the first two parts. We had just a blast doing those first yeah. two parts. We are going to have a blast doing our, our final episode in that mini. Well, our second to last, our penultimate episode in Two Mike, Two Furious before we review F9, the fast saga. I can't wait. If I if I knew a damn thing about cars, I would rev an engine right now. But I That's barely right. know how to put a revved engine sound effect in on post during this episode. So we'll see. If, if I that turn my there. key too fast and the car doesn't start, what happens? <laughs> Daddy. Yeah, I'm just calling somebody. No, we, we we're not car people, and we still have. Hello, triple A. <laughs> the dumbest reasons uh, we've called triple A. Go. Can't change a tire. I've done it myself. Of course, of course, a rim fell off. Well, there goes my day. Right, uh, guys. When reality sucks, you can come check out these film festivals with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar, trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See you.